0: Welcome to the Think Data podcast, brought to you in partnership with DataWorks. If you want to stay up to date with the latest breakthroughs and trends in the world of data and artificial intelligence, and if you're curious about some of the strategies that companies and founders use to launch data and AI products, then you're in the right place. Our aim is to bring together a diverse lineup of fantastic guests, from the founders through to accomplished leaders and product owners at some of the most fascinating data and AI companies worldwide, they will each offer you their own unique insight into what it takes to launch and scale a great data business. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Think Data podcast in partnership with DataWorks. And today I am really excited to be in person, in the flesh, in New York with Cal Al-Dubebe, dubaib is here in New York currently uh, speaking at the AI Summit, which uh, more on that shortly. But Cal uh, uh, is very active on the, the AI and data scene. He is the founder of Pan Data. They are an award-winning consulting and advisory business uh, within data and AI. Um, very active on LinkedIn, very active on social media. And, you know, if you look closely, he's been, you know, he was in Portugal a couple of weeks back, West Coast, East Coast, Central America. He's everywhere. Um, It's really good to have you here. And uh, obviously kind of the headline bit there, obviously you I suppose, what pays the bills is the consulting advisory business. But what would be really interesting is to kind of bring everyone to speed that's listening uh, and also watching. uh w- What is your background? Because yeah. it wasn't necessarily a classic kind of data background, was it?
1: So uh, funny that you should ask, and I, I, I don't share this story that often, Okay, um, but actually my, uh, the, the bulk of my studies was in a field called computational neuroscience. Okay. And uh, I started off at Case Western Reserve University, and uh, I had a very non-traditional path. Um, I initially started off with, uh, public relations and, uh, political science. Okay. Uh, I was very interested in how the world worked, especially having grown up in Saudi Arabia. Yep. And, uh, very quickly I realized, okay, you know what? If I, if I want to get into a career, uh, that's going to pay the bills, maybe software development is it. And I started off with computer science. Hated it. Uh, found my way, um, into the world of neuroscience. Loved how the brain thinks. Um, And of course, many major changes later. Mm. uh, In 2016, I hear that my university is launching a data science program. Um, And that's what I had been doing. I'd been working in the field of research, applying math to study population data in the context of healthcare settings. And I call my dad and I say, I'm going to change my major one more time seven one for every year as an undergrad okay. <laughs> fair enough <laughs> and so that's how I found myself in the world of data science and okay. I got to become actually the first data science graduate from my university
0: interesting and obviously yeah. as you said Saudi Arabia obviously then you obviously focused heavily on that kind of neuroscience piece data piece when did pan data get conceived and what was the kind of because it's seven years old now so yeah. what was the what was the vision behind that? Because obviously you worked, if I remember rightly, for some pretty large companies, and yeah. then you obviously took those steps to kind of set your own gig. What, what was the rationale and thinking behind that?
1: So uh, actually, it was all inspired by uh, my early days as an intern working in population health research. Okay, I had a startup before Pandata called Triple Analytics, yep. and uh, it was this idea of I'm, I'm working with um, clinical records back in 2011 2012, um, and I was obsessed with this idea of there's patterns in this data that can help us deliver more personalized care. Mm. Um, so AI and medicine, it was a little bit early for its time, but I started my first company to try to tackle some of those challenges. Um, we got some early pilots with hospital systems under that startup. And um, poor product market fit, inexperienced founder, um, couldn't get to the next level. Okay. What's funny is when I started to fold those pilots, some of these hospitals were a little bit miffed. Mm. They had gotten used to the free research services that we were doing. Yeah. 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 And I, I, I realized, wait a minute, that's what you would pay for? Um, And I kept hearing this phrase, it was around 2016, while I was um, wrapping up my first company, and I kept hearing, we have data, we don't know what to do with it. The field of data science was still relatively new, uh, fewer than 10,000 data science professionals um, in North America at the time, and big scarcity in markets like Cleveland. And so that was the genesis of Pandata. Um, helping organizations understand how to work with data effectively, attract and retain data science talent, and get started on these projects. And over the years, uh, that evolved into a focus on machine learning and specifically a focus on this notion of responsible machine learning and
0: yeah. AI. Because I'm interested to dig on that because the responsible yeah. machine learning and AI piece is something you've obviously as well documented and you know, you're passionate about it. Obviously, Pandata yeah. is is talking about that a lot and obviously delivering projects and services within yeah. that space obviously we've had the kind of white house executive order mm. in the us in the uk we've bizarrely we've flown elon musk over <laughs> and started to talk <laughs> I about saw that. yeah talk about ai and involving him which i thought was slightly balmy. but uh yeah. you know all for the, all the podcasts i've had all the kind of conversations we have with executives everyone's talking about ethical ai yeah. and responsible ai in your kind of kind of experience what is that and and kind of what do companies need to be considering um, before kind of looking at ai
1: Uh, great question and whenever i think about ethics in the context of engineering i go back to my college courses where we're taught things like oh you always want to add a safety margin to make sure you're not cutting corners to make sure that something doesn't happen that's an extreme event that Mm. puts people at risk and it's very textbook the challenge with machine learning and ai um, which is the discipline of, of training models or software mm. to recognize and react to patterns, is it's all very dependent on these patterns that we feed them yeah, and the data that we're selecting. And the way that AI systems break is different than other systems. Whenever we're talking about probability, we're not saying it's either going to work or not work. There's a chance it's going to be wrong. yeah. And so it's this discipline of designing a system knowing that it's going to have some faultiness to it. And the way in which these models break, they're different than intuition usually expects Mm. them to be. So, um, for example, instead of it just not functioning, maybe uh, in the case of a language model, um, you give it a series of characters that basically um, it's never seen before and it results in the model behaving completely haywire. Um, So it's hard to imagine how AI systems break or fail. Mm. And so that's where a lot of these... um, ethical issues come into play.
0: It's interesting to touch on that because obviously with open sourcing, with you know the way models are being built, large language module, models, there is this kind of bias is creeping in and yeah. actually people are concerned around the adoption of models because they don't really know necessarily the source of them or how they've been built. And if you look at the deployment of AI solutions, yeah. do you think companies are more worried about, you know, how those models are effectively being created? Or is it really how those models are going to be used? Do you think there's kind of a, where do you think the issue is here?
1: So it used to be. And part of the reason why AI is having such a moment, mm. especially over the past few years, is yeah. the problem was building the models in yeah. the past. We didn't have enough data. We didn't have enough compute. We didn't have enough talent. And today, a lot of that, it's not easy, but it's solved for. Yeah. You throw enough resources at it, you can in fact build a robust machine learning system. The challenge today is how do we manage the risk? How do we select the right patterns? Mm. How do we even know if we're building the right thing? Um, And there's a classical example of Amazon several years ago. They attempted to build an AI system that would scan resumes to try to facilitate... Um, just the thousands of applications. How do you prioritize the top candidates to look at? Yep. Every time they tried to deploy the system, they noticed it had a, a tendency to select and prioritize male candidates over female engineering. Interesting. Candidates. And at first, they they um, you know obvious um, problem was their previous hiring practices. Yeah. Um and so they tried to rebalance the data set, and then they found that the model still had the same bias. It was keying in on things in resumes like men's chess club, women's soccers club okay so then they tried to remove the gendered words, and you can do that programmatically with natural language processing techniques. The next thing the model keyed off on was passive and active forms of writing which loosely correlate to gender uh, okay. and no matter how hard they tried, they couldn't design a version of this model that mitigated that bias enough to be acceptable for use. And so they scrapped the project. Yeah, And a lot of the challenges that um, organizations are facing today with these AI systems isn't about, can we build it? It's, should we build it? What mm. happens if we do build it? Does it have any of these systemic consequences that we're willing to live with?
0: Yeah, I've not heard the Amazon example. And obviously with someone in talent, is I probably should have. But it's, uh, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because obviously you, you tie into talent quite nicely that obviously they're everyone's talking about ai you're obviously yeah. in new york for the summit which i'm going to be in, in, intrigued to see what the general consensus of opinion is especially yeah. after the last couple of weeks with sam at open ai <laughs> and you know the world is kind of uh, everyone's talking about ai at the moment but there is there is this big focus on organizations that are looking to invest in it i think it was 98 percent of the fortune 500 on their earnings call referenced ai sure but obviously that comes with its own set of challenges where they need to find people. Sure. What do you think the the issue is at the moment? Is it about the lack of available talent or is it the lack of desire for companies to invest in people to kind of train them in that? Because it's so new. Yeah. Look at some of the libraries, some of the new techniques. They're so new. Sure. What do you think the challenge is here? So
1: some of it's new and some of it's been around since, yeah. you know, the 80s. Exactly. exactly. Um, so... We- you know, it's interesting. Is I, I like to talk about AI as like this pyramid. Where at yep. the foundation we have just good data hygiene, yep. using data to drive decision making. Um, you know, a couple rungs up the ladder, you enter into the world of machine learning, and that's yep. stuff that we've been able to do effectively for the last ten years. Mm. The new part is generative AI. Yeah. And using that effectively, in a lot of cases, um, you know, you have executives imagining, like, "Oh, wow, this could be really useful. Uh, could we use AI for this? Could we use AI for that?" In fact, the most yeah. frequent question I get is, "How do we use AI for X?"
0: Why do you think that is? Do you think because you know, obviously, you've got the CFOs, suite yeah. which are driving a lot of decisions? Do you think? because they think AI is this silver bullet that's going to solve their problems, so they must need AI? This, or is it people kind of getting on the bandwagon here and there, they're all thinking they need it? I
1: think it, it's a mix of both. Yeah. There's very practical uses of AI. Yeah. Obviously, we wouldn't be doing what we were doing if that wasn't the case. Yeah. But there's a lot of mismatched expectations. And this all comes down to how humans anthropomorphize AI systems. Yeah. Intelligence, in fact, is still poorly defined, mm. let alone what... Artificial intelligences. Yeah. And so you see a model, a language model, um, generalize to a lot of common questions, right? I can, ask it, I can ask ChatGPT today to come up with a refined version of my bio. Yeah. I frequently use it to take old versions of my talks and produce new talking points. Yeah. And I use it as a co-creative partner. And so that looks really, really impressive. And we don't yet have the intuition of understanding when it will generalize well mm. versus when it won't generalize as well. Yeah. And so today we see AI or these language models producing outputs that we associate with creativity, with strategy, yeah. with planning. And we generalize that to a lot of tasks, even though we probably shouldn't.
0: Mm. I think you touched on a really interesting point about gen yeah. AI, because obviously machine learning in its rawest risk form <coughs> yeah. has been around for a number of years. Um, And actually different reiterations of data science, machining and AI has kind of progressed over the last 15, 20 years. But Gen AI is very new. It's this kind of hot topic. It's about driving efficiencies. It's the content piece. It's, yeah, you've obviously been to a lot of conferences. You've been to Europe. You've been to the UK and and the US. What's your general, I suppose, thoughts on the state of the Gen AI space at the moment?
1: So um, there's an explosion of tools and platforms and new titles and talent, um, but where I'm seeing the most immediate value and where folks are having a lot of success, it's in conversational agents. So um, if today there's these very repetitive um, and high in tedious um, effort mm-hmm. tasks like password resets on help desks or things that have standard operating procedure, immediate value to be found. Yeah. Things like creating new content, adapting content to different tones and styles at scale. Great. Um, entertainment, mm-hmm. um, creating and designing new images, adapting film and video. That's the stuff that's forever going to be different in the world of AI as far as enterprises go there's also a growing niche in the world of knowledge and information management so think of curating contracts or faqs or product information and layering on intelligent agents on top of that to be able to answer complex questions uh, create new templates that's an area that's starting to get some defensibility around it yeah for a lot of other forms of automation Um, or uh, decision augmentation. Traditional machine learning is still very important. And it almost seems to me in the world of uh, language models, right, today's media conversation is focusing on that, there's other facets of AI like computer vision that are starting to get traction as well. Um, And that's another area of growth that I expect to see over the next few years.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's really, I think we're at a fascinating uh... I suppose, this inflection point, because I think we've got this. The problem we have is the the momentum and the hype sure. is inflating valuations.
1: And, well, you know, what's interesting, um, I have private conversations without naming names. Yeah, Companies from the Fortune 1000 list, yeah. they'll brag. I've met folks at conferences that will brag about what they're building and how sophisticated they are. And if you talk to them, their engineers are solid. Like, they're actually... Not using best practice yeah. on deploying, designing, even training these language models. And then you ask them, okay, what's your timeline for production? And that's where everybody goes quiet.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting point, isn't it? Because I think you, you, you refer you referred to an interesting um, point earlier where obviously people C suite or whatever suite are yeah. Need AI. They, they, we need to bring an AI in to drive efficiencies to help us analyze these documents, create these processes, and actually remove, in some degree, re- remove the need for people. Um, but I think what we've also seen is this increase in hype valuations, sure. um, companies who aren't making money, who are being built on quicksand at the moment, yeah. um, and obviously this is kind of coincided with a slowdown in the the wider economy. What do you think will make a great Gen.I.I. startup or product versus the ones that are all just building effectively an interface layer yeah. Chat ChatGPT, but it's just branded differently?
1: So um, one of my, my good friends, her name is Jennifer Strong, she's an incredible journalist in this space, and she wrote in the Wall Street Journal in 2018, for okay. AI to be useful, it needs to become boring.
0: Interesting, okay. And
1: I often end a lot of my talks These days, with let's make AI boring again. And to answer your question, what becomes a valuable startup? It's in the thing folks don't like to deal with. The reality is, for a gen AI product to be successful, there's a lot of data curation, knowledge management. Um, Let's say you're trying to deploy one of these language models on proprietary company information. Uh, We recently were, were talking to a company in the medical space, and they've got proprietary product specs. Um, on all of their many thousands of products. And this can be true of any company that has proprietary information. You all of a sudden have to have a process that goes through each of these product documents and understand what, if any, contain private information, uh, trade secrets. Um, You have to have knowledge management and access rights on any user that then interfaces with that platform. So there's a lot of curation that goes into it. And layer that on top, of, or layer on top of that, the need to vet any content for potential incorrect information, harmful biases. How you go through curating and selecting good and bad examples, and all of a sudden, there's a lot of human effort that goes into that orchestration. Yeah, you solve for that, and you really start to make a dent in the a- Gen AI conversation.
0: I think you touched on something there with the the content piece, and actually, I, I was speaking to someone yesterday. Um, where they are trying to almost like watermark content that's been generated by AI to show sure. it's actually legitimate, it's true. Um, there was a, someone said to me the other week: "It's the kind of the train has left the station, and it's very yeah. hard to kind of slow that train down." But what do you think we can expect to see over the kind of next six, twelve months from a from an AI standpoint? Because we are at this kind of plateaued point yeah um what do you what do you think we, we can expect to see
1: well so you know we, we talked a little bit about this by email too mm. this ties into the notion of governance and yeah you, know, you mentioned earlier the white house um you know executive order um and many other countries are proposing or actually enacting laws or adapting previous laws to encompass um, foundation models of yeah. gen ai um what i what i think the last 12 months was is organizations quick to prototype and develop yep. the skill and muscle of how do we even build this what infrastructure do we need how do we go about doing this the next 12 months is going to look like establishing process and best practice yeah i think there are a lot of alarm bells incorrectly sounded earlier this year we're going to lose a bunch of jobs yeah uh, a lot of functions are going to be automated gen ai for almost insert anything um it takes time for Humes to adapt to processes and create processes mm. and KPIs and standard operating procedures. So the next 12 months for me, or my prediction is going to be a lot of that best practice starting to be codified. Yeah, We're going to see standards like NIST's um, AI risk management framework be generalized to... Um, Generative AI, for example, and that was actually a part of the executive order. Um, we're going to see companies, and we're already working with enterprises that are looking to build out their standards and practices around that. So I think the next 12 months is going to see more of that standardization mm. and more of how we manage the risks of gen AI solutions.
0: Because there is a risk, isn't yeah. there? I think. Uh... I think people are very quick to focus on the negatives, yeah. uh, but actually if you look at the positives AI or machine learning is having in health, you know, chronic disease detection, sure. um, that's fascinating. I think the Gen AI piece, because there's an immediately a focus on displacement of humans um, because of that, I think that's where yeah. there's a lot of kind of resentment, but it also boils down to, we touched on it earlier about kind of talent, and I know it's a big focus for you with your kind of, if you're going into an organisation who want to deploy an AI, an AI yeah. solution... How should they approach that? Because obviously Pandata will go and advise them, will consult with them, will say, this is fit for purpose. But in terms yeah. of scaling up their capability from a talent standpoint, how should they approach that?
1: So whenever we get asked, can AI help with insert whatever function, mm. sometimes I might default to a very cheeky answer and say, yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> course, it can. Yeah. yeah, of course it can. Absolutely. Uh, But I really want to know, and the question I immediately ask is, what are you doing today without AI? Okay. There are two things that become really important whenever we talk about an AI system, whether it's generative or what we've been doing for the last 10 years. And it's um, what are you doing today? How do you you make good decisions today in the absence of automation? And how do you codify that? And there have to be humans that are skilled at mapping that out um, and understanding how we capture data around those processes. And the second thing is, what data do you use to measure the success of that function? Yeah. And again, that comes back down to how do we select good examples that are used to train these models or evaluate the functioning of these models? And I, I'm convinced that the future of workforce around automation is going to look more and more like humans that make these judgment calls. Instead of actually performing the functions, we're helping to curate and set up guardrails and select good examples and craft processes that then automation can help with.
0: So it should be the the enabler, the yeah. complementary addition as opposed to replacement.
1: There was an interesting position that's been circulated recently, put out by um, a developer on the OpenAI team. And, you know, they they posit that for a long time we needed different types of modeling techniques to deal with the limitations of data. But if you can throw the whole sink kitchen at your algorithms, it doesn't necessarily matter which model you choose. Um, It all converges to the same general results when you have enough scale of data and a sophisticated enough model to capture the pattern in that data. So for a while, being clever with algorithms was the thing. Hmm. Now we're going back to being clever with data and how we select it and how we curate it.
0: I think you touched on something which I wanted to dig on because I feel I feel people come in with this view of AI or machine learning and they'll think they can deploy that solution and instantly have a result. But actually they need to get their own modern data environment. Yep set up first because obviously if it kind of bad data in is automatically going to lead to bad data out so when you're going into these organizations i I think you touched on something there with a a few questions that you're asking is kind of your kind of tick box but how important is the company's current data set up to really get the most out of ai
1: there's a lot of hubris, actually. We, yeah. we encounter organizations all the time. We're like, oh, yeah, we have the data. It's in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> and sure, you might have captured yeah. something, but is it the right data? Did you ask the right question? Were you using the right definitions? Mm-hmm. Has it been consistent year over year? Um, we, we're working with a, a client on uh, disability detection, something that's very simple. Yeah. We use patient medical claims at scale, and we try to figure out who is likely to qualify for additional subsidies from Medicare and Medicaid and disability guidelines change from year to year. Um, And the process of being able to map that pattern over time, it shifts subtly. And, um, you know, we're, we're right now even working with them to actually build out a language model that's going to go from standards that are published every few months or every year, uh, to translate that into their rules engine. But the idea is that these, these patterns, they shift over time. And so what you might think is a treasure trove of good data, trying to apply a model over three, five years of data might actually help you learn the wrong pattern. And that's yeah. often the case. There's this hubris of, oh, we've collected it all. We've spent all this money on our compute <laughs> and we have it. It has to be worth something. And sometimes it's like, no, you've got to start from scratch. You really don't have the right data. <laughs> and they could
0: end up pouring a lot of ton you know, yeah. money, energy to ultimately deliver them no value. Yeah. I think your, um, your insights are really fascinating. And I know the final question I had for you was not something we've necessarily spoken about prior to this, but you've been in Europe recently. Yeah. Um was it Lisbon the Web 3.0 summit?
1: It was the Web Summit, yeah.
0: The Web Summit. You're obviously very very well versed in the kind of the US market as well. What's your opinion on Europe versus the US from where they are from their data and AI? Kind of maturity, well, yeah. Because I know you the the summit in Lisbon as well, Doc. One of the biggest, I think you referenced on LinkedIn, it was h- bigger than you. Seventy
1: five thousand attendees
0: wow. this year. Yeah. Wow, overcome multiple arenas, it was like a festival. And yeah. For what was the what's your when you obviously reflecting on the way home? How far? The reason I'm asking this yeah. question is we we have a European focus. We have a lot of kind of listeners of the podcast who are in Europe, UK, and also the US, and people are always yeah. asking me. You know, is the U.S. ahead? or kind of Europe are they ahead? What, what's your take on that?
1: Uh, so this this struck me for the first time last year. And most of my experience had been in North America. Yeah. And last year I actually started to attend and speak at various different um, European conferences. And the immediate focus on governance and uh, risk management in Europe kind of hit me in the face mm. last year. Um, the two different markets are ahead in slightly different ways. If you look at um, you know, the Silicon Valley, for example, as the source of a lot of these um, or center of a lot of these startups, um, there's a lot of innovation happening here that's very focused on pushing the boundaries of what can be done with machine learning and AI. And what I really appreciated about the focus in Europe is there's a lot of companies pushing the boundaries on how we stress test and preserve um, the, um, or how do we manage the risks of these models and solutions? So it's almost like there's like good things on yeah. both sides ahead in different ways. Um, even as early as last year in October, I attended the uh, the AI uh, World AI Summit in Amsterdam, and there were companies showcasing algorithmic testing and auditing uh, services well before anything like the EU AI Act was even close to having guidance or text around. And that's notably missing in US in the US market, but starting to catch up.
0: It's not something I thought of. And actually when you when you tie in Europe's obviously been yeah. it's relatively risk averse. You've got GDPR, you've got some heavy rules and regulations around kind of data use sure. and data privacy. And uh, it's almost like the US is <laughs> obviously I work a lot here, it's kind of the bit of seat of their pants, a bit Risk of a, we know you hmm. know risk they'll take risks. Oh sure. Whereas yeah. in Europe, it's always been built on measures. But what you're saying now is actually Europe have almost got ahead of the US in kind of preempting the potential restrictions that may come in.
1: Well, and there's companies there that are ready to deliver those services yeah. versus there's fewer of those companies here in North America. Mm. Um, and, and what I find really interesting about this is, um, you know, and there's, there's arguments for and against regulation. Uh, but if we think about, like, seatbelts in cars, yep. um, when that was initially proposed, a car company was saying, there's no way. It's, it's not worth the cost no. to have these little no. things and now we, can't imagine, <laughs> <laughs> now we can't even imagine a no. car without seatbelts. No, exactly. Um, and there's a reason we have federal agencies that look at standards related to food production, um, airplane manufacturing, for example, a wing has to be subjected to so many different stress tests and varying different weather conditions and heat conditions. Um, And it's not because we don't trust the good companies designing these products and solutions, but we needed a standard and conformity against which everybody is measuring. Today, when it comes to responsibly designing AI solutions, it comes back to what is your definition of what being a responsible data scientist looks like
0: self interpretation, yeah it's very yeah. open to interpretation, yeah,
1: everyone here thinks they're the good guy,
0: yeah, they don't want to be seen as the bad guy
1: well, nobody ever thinks they are
0: no, no, I think it's uh <laughs> look, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I feel we could talk for hours. I'm looking forward to hearing your speech tomorrow. I know. We will post obviously uh, the link to that. We'll make sure people follow you. Um, you know, do yourself a favor. Check Cal out on LinkedIn. You've got some great content. I think you're, what you're doing at Pandata, But equally on the the bigger AI piece, I think it's it's been really interesting to watch what you've been doing. So thanks so much for uh, taking time out to speak to me in person in New York. It's been uh, been my pleasure.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. It's really good to be here, and thanks for having me.
0: Thanks, Cal.